Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. The legacy of the King James Version of the Bible is broad and encompassing, reaching the shores of North America from the British Isles from the early 17th century onwards. JWV, one of our regular Canadian viewers of the video edition of this series, is familiar with the book for when growing up in England, she remembers studying the King James Bible as a Methodist. She brought her beloved copy of the authorized version to North America when she immigrated at age 11 and still reads from it daily. Her favorite passage is Psalm 23 and the Lord's Prayer, which she often recites to herself. The publication of the King James Version of the Bible, the most widely published book in the English language, it's been called our national epic, the noblest monument of English prose, and rivaled only by Shakespeare for the beauty and influence of its language. James Knoxfield assesses the story of why King James decided to commission a new translation and of the painstaking work by a committee of 54 scholars to bring it to fruition, and the impact that the Bible has had worldwide and reflects on its continuing influence in our language and culture. This Bible is with us still, in our language, as a lens through which our whole culture shines. Whether for Christians, practicing or dormant, or for those who simply value the best in our past, the King James Bible is precious. A product of politics and religious strife as much as devotion, shaped by accident as well as design, it has come to represent and embody so much of what we hold dear in our language and our literature, as well as remaining an instrument of faith. No book has travelled further, none has matched its weight in our culture and over its 400 years, none has been more widely loved. From Stationers Hall in the City of London to the streets, from the Revision Committee who listened for months to the work of the translators to approve the final version of the King James Bible to the public who heard it and learned it. I'm outside one of the oldest coaching inns in London, the George in Southwark, where you can sense those past times. An age, for example, when the Bible was the only book in the home, when the King James, the authorised version, was read in every church at every service. You remember here that the language passed from pulpit to the street. So much of the English language we know even today has that book as its source and its inspiration. The legacy is all around us. The language came out of the church, this somewhat archaic language in many ways, and embedded itself in the culture of the everyday. Indeed, and pubs in general are places where linguists like to go for, for precisely that reason. My own students can be seen with recorders in pubs listening to local dialects. This particular one has the added advantage of all those literary associations. Chaucer, Shakespeare, Dickens used to be in the next room. So for all kinds of reasons, this is a good place to talk about the language of the King James Version. And the phrases from the Bible that crop up unknowing to many people in our everyday speech. Oh, absolutely, because the Bible that they heard every day worked itself into the language, and indeed those biblical contexts were often forgotten. So if we say something like fly in the ointment, or go the second mile, or, or lick the dust, or my boss is a thorn in the flesh, those are all phrases that could have been articulated in this very pub. And were we to use any of them, no one would say, ah, oh, yes, that's a biblical illusion, because those origins have been lost. I survived by the skin of the teeth. No one thinks of that as biblical, and yet it was transmitted from the church to this very pub and thousands like it. It seems as if the legacy of the translators comes in two forms, doesn't it? 
One is the magnificence of the language, because Macaulay said, if everything else in the English language should perish, the King James Bible would alone suffice to show the whole extent of its beauty and power. So you have the grandeur on the one hand. On the other, you have the way that it permeated the speech of every day. Indeed, the sheer epigrammatic power of what Macaulay said, I think, obscures the fact that it's not actually true. That the Bible uses only a proportion of the language that Macaulay himself used. And if you think of his own prose with its subordinate clauses, the Bible is free of all that because its most striking characteristic is its simplicity. It's grammatically simple and its vocabulary is simple. And the folk memory is there for many people who have never opened any Bible, let alone the King James, in their life. Indeed, the lingering sense that it somehow comes from something, it could be Shakespeare, but when people say, God forbid, or the race is not for the swift, or do we see eye to eye on this, there is no consciousness that they come from the Bible, though they all do, but there is a sense that they have an origin in something other than ordinary language. Uplifting rhythms, that's such a thread through our whole literature and culture, isn't it? in terms of the resonance of the language, and it's easy to remember. And it's precisely because it's absolutely at the centre of the texture of how English works, with KJV written to be spoken. It's the rhythms, it's that absolutely familiar structure of, you know, the ten-syllable, five-footed, iambic rhythm, you know, they can, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. You've got personification. It's starting with personification of voice. You've got the old pronouns. And all those structures that are so familiar and so much beloved to us in Shakespeare, in Milton, are exactly the rhythmic nature and structure of the KJV. And it's true, not just in the 17th century, but for later generations, so many writers drew on that well for their language and for their rhythms. This deep well and powerhouse of language and rhythms, but also of stories, really hard, wide stories, whether it's Moby Dick, can I hook this Leviathan with a whale? I mean, he takes that one phrase from the King James Version and then you know, writes that whole narrative. And that arguably takes you from Moby Dick. You can draw a direct line from Melville to, to Hemingway's somewhat shorter version, but similar resonance in the language of the old man and the sea and hugely influential on 18th and 19th century text. And we shouldn't forget radical texts as well, radical poetry and texts, whether it's Mary Wollstonecraft, whether it's Shelley, whether it's on the women writers of the 19th century. What strikes me is a kind of paradox. It is true that in the early centuries there is an explicitly Christian literature that borrows from the King James Version. So Milton, whom you mentioned, takes She Gave Me of the Tree and I Did Eat, which is a perfect iambic pentameter line, and he simply puts it into Paradise Lost. It needs a footnote. He should have acknowledged that he borrowed it. But in later centuries, what happens in English literature is that the canon becomes entirely secular. What does happen in England is that the familiar language of the Bible begins to infuse this holy secular literature. And much is lost if you don't recognize it. Something like Mill on the Floss, for example, George Eliot's great novel, one of the greatest novels in English, it ends with the epitaph on the tomb of Tom and Maggie Gulliver, and it simply says as the closing words of the novel, in their death they were not divided. Now, it's immensely moving, but much of its power is lost if you don't realize that it's David's lament for Saul and Jonathan in the King James Version of the Bible, and any Victorian reader would have recognized that instantly. 
One of the reasons why the language of the King James Bible has become embedded in everyday speech in many ways is because the practice of Christian worship down the centuries is such a central part of our national story. You can't stand here without hearing some of the passages we've come to know. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. There are so many wonderful settings of these words. They love to hear this language, this poetry of faith. And this poetry of faith still resonates with people very deeply, even though a lot of the dogma that goes behind it is something people are uncertain about. The poetry itself and the poetry of faith is something that still touches people very deeply indeed. Thank you for the wonderful comments, messages, ratings, and reviews. All of them are regularly posted for your reading pleasure on patreon.com slash markvinette.